As Napoleon Bonaparte famously said, the winners write the history books. In season one of Rain on Me, we will delve into the Imperial Bees and examine the families of the Bernays, the Bonapartes, and the Bernadottes, and how they intertwined to change monarchies around the world forever. How did a French soldier and a merchant's daughter become the king and queen of Sweden, whose house reigns to this very day? What does the Queen of Holland's notoriously messy life have to do with the Second Empire of France? How did monarchies around the world come to have Creole roots? These questions and other intrigues will be answered as we look at these families and their strategies, drama, and follies, and how they not only changed monarchy, but politics around the world forever. Join me, your host, Jennifer Goldbranson, for season one of Rain on Me, Imperial Bees. Episode one, The Trashy Creoles of Martinique. Hey there, and welcome to the first episode of Rain on Me, Imperial Bees. I'm your host, Jennifer Goldbranson, author of the American Duchess trilogy, beginning with Mona Mi Celeste, which will be out soon and covers the French Revolution, First Empire, Bourbon Restoration, and Second Empire. So join me, won't you, as we look into these families who started it all, the Bernays, the Bernadottes, and the Bonapartes. Now, a couple of housekeeping items. First of all, if you've already heard my Chicago accent, I will be butchering these names. I am pretty proficient in the French language reading and writing-wise, but for whatever reason, I can't pronounce a thing. I'm really, really good at Italian and Spanish, but French eludes me, so (laughs) forgive me in advance. It is what it is. The second piece of housekeeping is this is not an academic podcast, so don't look for a really deep conversation about political things or historical things. We're here to kind of gossip on, like, people that lived 200 years ago and are long dead, right? So go with it. If you are really into like royal goss and and the royalty of today, this is a great foundation. If you love historical fiction, come along, won't you? We're going to have fun here. So let's get started where the origins of these three families begin. And let's begin on the tiny Caribbean island of Martinique, and discuss those trashy creoles who end up not being the trashiest of all of these families, the Tachère de la Pajarise. Now we start on the island of Martinique because this is where our future first empress of France, Josephine, was born. And she was born Marie-Rose Joseph Tachère de la Pajarise. She was born to parents Joseph and Claire, and This is where the foundation is born with her because it brings together the first two families in this trio, and that is the Tachers as well as the Pyrenees. So let's get going on that because it's quite the scandalous beginning, but I'm promising you as we go, only as this will seem like child's play by episode five, but it's a pretty good start. Now it's important to note that a lot of... The Tacher de la Pagerie family's history has been erased for two reasons. The first reason being 
that because Josephine was so beloved by the French people, no matter what Napoleon did or didn't do, she was absolutely loved and revered by the French. So when the Bourbon Restoration happened, they did their best to whitewash a lot of Josephine's past to kind of remove her from Napoleon in a way. They kind of wanted to make her more bourbon, like kind of a neutral party. And there are a few reasons for this. One, she was the grandmother of Napoleon III. And her daughter and son were still part of active houses of royalty in Europe. Uh, And also, Napoleon still used her as a very valuable PR chip in his campaigning to come back to France from exile. It kept going until the day he died. Even though he divorced her and married an Austrian duchess, he still used Josephine as his trump card to pull at the heartstrings of the French people. So naturally, when the Bourbons came back into power with uh, King Louis XVIII, uh, they, they were like, no, <laughs> Josephine is one of us. We claim her. And they actually changed her name back to Birnay to kind of give a royalist turn to her. This was actually really kind of the, the thought child of both the uh, Madame Royale, Marie Antoinette's daughter, as well as the future Charles X, who was a staunch royalist. And he was like, if we bring Josephine into our sphere and claim her as one of us because she was jailed for being a royalist, she is a marquise in her own right, um, we, can, we can kind of massage this and kind of make her a neutral party for both of us. So that's where that comes from. The other thing of why history was sort of erased is that Martinique is a tiny, tiny island. And for 10 years between the 1760s and the mid-1770s, they were just barraged by an unreal hurricane season. And at that point, technology hadn't caught up to the colonies for them to preserve documents of any kind. So ironically speaking, (laughs) the best research, and I say ironically because the best researcher on this topic is Sandra Gulland, who wrote the trilogy of Josephine, starting with the many lives and secret sorrows of Josephine B. And I say ironically because her books are always next to my books at Barnes & Noble. And when I first started finishing up Mon Ami Celeste, which is the first book in my American Duchess trio... Um, she picked the same cover art for her latest book about Hortense de de Bernay, who is Josephine's daughter. And I was like, okay, respect. I'll go ahead and change my cover art. So, (laughs) but if you want to know more about Josephine's origins and Martinique itself, she is the penultimate, uh, she is the one. She is the one who knows the most about this. But let's circle back and talk about how Rose, who becomes Josephine, got her origins. Okay, so we begin at a place called Trois-Ilets in Marconi, which is basically three islands. And here we have a sugar plantation owner. He's very wealthy. His name is Joseph Gaspard Tacher. 
He has been a decorated military member of the French Marines, and he has been knighted and given Lord of the Manor status of La Pagerie, his plantation. Um, he marries Claire de Verge, and um, the thing that becomes canon in Claire de Verge's story is that her grandfather might be Irishman Anthony Brown. Now, this is kind of a bit of English propaganda that's, that's kind of um, introduced into Josephine's lineage because the British have a huge stake in what happens in France, and we'll see this throughout this series. And they introduce this, like, offshoot Irish grandfather to kind of bring Josephine back into the fold because, remember, after the Revolution, England housed the Bourbons. And so it's kind of, does Anthony Brown actually exist as an Irish grandfather? We don't really know. There aren't any records, but this is something that gets interjected everywhere. And it doesn't quite make a lot of sense. This becomes a huge propaganda item later on in the 19th century when Napoleon III um, takes control of France. But we'll get to that later. That's not part of the story. So Joseph Gaspard Tacher was a colonizer. And if you are an imperialist, if you are a royalist, this podcast may not be for you because I go in pretty hard on being anti-imperialist, anti-colonizer. Joseph was a colonizer. He went in search of riches. He was a member of the Marines. He killed several natives and took on a lot of slaves. Not a good dude. I will do my best in this podcast to view things from the lens of the time, but I'm also going to interject about how awful these men were, these European men. So he was known as a gambler. He was a philanderer. He was a spendthrift and basically an all-around mess. He loved rum. He couldn't give up rum and wine. <laughs> like, like, I get it, but at the same time, like, I don't get it. Like, who doesn't love rum and wine? But he is a classified mess. And as we go through the history of the Tasher family, we see a lot of opportunities for them to return to France and live a pretty comfortable life, especially Claire and the oldest daughter as we go through this story. But Joseph is such a freaking mess and has so many children on this island and has so many debts that they, he is really kind of tied to Martinique for the rest of his life. So let's continue. So he fathered so many children within his enslaved women. It was rumored that Mimi, who was um, Rose and then Josephine's lifelong companion and housemaid, was really her half-sister. And there was also rumor that Joseph Tacher de la Pagerie fathered much of Martinique. Like, he is the father of Martinique. There is a reason why they made Trois-Ilet a museum, because everybody on that island has that DNA. Um... The family struggled financially after hurricanes destroyed their estate in, in 1766. I'm American, right? So every time I see 17, I always go 76. But it was 1766, a huge hurricane. This actually kind of started like 10 years of just devastating tropical storms through the area. And this, the 66 hurricane was really what kind of just decimated the whole island. Um, they, after that hurricane, the family literally lived in the sugar mill. 
Now, if you're American, you've probably seen mills through the South and the Midwest, river mills, etc. And imagine the little building that holds the river wheel that keeps things a churning. That's where the entire family went to. Now, they had four daughters as well as slaves. A lot of their slaves escaped during and after the storm. But the slaves that remained, as well as the family of six, lived in the sugar mill for the entirety of their lives. They never, ever rebuild the estate. It wasn't because of the hurricane. Now, a lot of literature about the Tachere de la Pagerie is like, well, they just never rebuilt from the hurricane. No, it was because Joseph had insurmountable debts and no longer had any collateral. Now, here's something that is ugly and your polite history books don't really talk about. Back in those days, credit in the colonies, we're not talking Europe, we're talking in the colonies. Credit in the colonies, and this includes America, was based on the amount of human chattel you owned. So the amount of slaves you owned outright determined how much the banks would give you. Isn't that an ugly part of history? Like your credit score was literally how many people you owned. That is appalling. Oh my God. So because so many slaves escaped during the hurricanes and they actually went to Haiti, um, Joseph lost a lot of his collateral in standing with the bank. He also had a huge amount of debts because it was estimated he probably had close to 25 children that were not enslaved. Just illegitimate running around. I mean, at some point you wrap it up, right, Joe? So anyway... Joseph was a walking, talking Maury episode. There's no way around it. But lucky for Joseph, he has an incredibly genius older sister. Younger sister. She's, I don't know why I said older. I think I say older because Desiree Tachere de la Pagerie has a gravitas about her that is conveyed through history even though her origins are rather tawdry, there seems to be a, a respect in those who wrote about her that this lady was smart. And this lady was not just cunning for her own benefit, but she was cunning for her family's benefit. And it comes from a genuine place. And I'm still trying to figure out why certain women in history get a good edit and some women don't. But in this case... Desiree gets a good edit throughout history because she is basically trafficked by Joseph to what we're going to talk about next, but she uses that as a great advantage. And this is where people become complicated because you don't know quite what to think of the whole thing. So Desiree is this young, beautiful, she was described as this great beauty when she was 12 years old. I mean, just knock out, I mean, as much as, again, we're, we're in 1760s, kind of, 1750s even, um, understanding. It was a different time. It doesn't make it right, but we have to look through this at a 1750s lens when girls came of age at 14, 15, and you were an old maid if you were not married by 20. We have to really kind of, use that lens, but we're going to commentate through a 2022 lens. So Desiree 
for nearly 60 years ends up being Francois, the Marquis de Pirenee, official mistress. Now, Bernay, yes, you heard that name right. We are going to go into the entire house of Bernay in this podcast. But she's the catalyst for getting the Tachers into this house. So she was 12 years old on Martinique when Francois, the Marquis de Bernay, became governor of Martinique. He was 27 at the time. He was also married to Henrietta de Bernay and had two sons, Francois and Alexander. It's unclear, again, because of the records that were lost and the whitewashing of the Bernay name when the Bourbon Restoration happened. It's unclear if how much time the wife and the boy spent on Martinique. There was a little bit of time because Alexander actually writes about his time on Martinique, but I don't think the wife and boys were living on Martinique full-time. I think they were there at the beginning and then went back to France. Uh, Island life for Europeans was not kind. It's, well, I'm going to use this analogy a lot when dealing with the Creoles. It's kind of like taking your corn-fed cousin from, like, I don't know, West Liberty, Iowa, who literally knows two stoplights and, like, a Casey's gas station and putting them right smack dab in the middle of Manhattan in the high society of the Upper East Side. It's the reverse for the French people who go to the colonies. So you have someone from the Upper... Let's... For all of you Real Housewives fans, because she is French royalty, let's, let's think of the Countess, right? Countess Luanne de, de Lesseps. Let's think of taking Countess Luanne and putting her in West Liberty, Iowa. That <laughs> with a Casey's gas station and two stoplights, and everybody has a four-bedroom ranch house, right? And then, like, they all go to the pork days in August. Like, imagine the Countess in that environment. That was kind of like high society French people from Versailles. Now, remember, Versailles was at its peak during this time. So it's kind of like taking all of these French people that were used to the pomp of Versailles and the etiquette of Versailles and then putting them in Iowa. Complete culture shock. So I do believe that the Henrietta and the boys were in Martinique for a minute and then went back to France. So this would make Desiree of age at 14, 15 years old, and her beauty was astounding. It's always so funny how a woman's beauty will survive (laughs) the history books and not the actual facts of things. So by the time she is of age, she is never ever presented to society. And that was a big thing around the world back then. Like when it was time for you to find a husband, you were presented to society. And Desiree was never presented to a society because Francois de Bernay, the governor of Martinique, claimed her, I think, the second she turned 14. I don't know if that's accurate, but based on coming to conclusions from various sources, that seems to be what happened. At this point, he was 30 years old, and he saw this 14, 15-year-old girl, and they became companions for the rest of their lives. That's where it gets kind of complicated, and you don't know the dynamics, but it seems like they were utterly devoted to each other. So we'll leave it at that. 
Now, Francois is recalled to France by King Louis XV to receive a huge amount of honors. Martinique becomes the richest French colony and is making buku bucks for the country, which the king will later blow on the American Revolution and cause the French Revolution. But Francois does a really, really good job managing trade and making a huge amount of money on the backs of slaves, mind you. And this is the birth of capitalism, if we're being frank. The entire new world is the birth of capitalism, and capitalism is born on the backs of slave labor. Now, back in France, they act like this is disgusting, and the average Frenchman is like, gross, slaves, no. But we look away when there's money involved. The English are all for slaves, and the Americans are all for slaves. The French kind of like, it's our dirty little secret. We're not going to talk about it. We still look fabulous because of it. So, and this becomes important as we go down the line and through these episodes of how the slave trade really impacts politics and the monarchy from the French point of view. And that is directly from the influence of Rose, who grew up on this island and then becomes the Empress of France. Anyway, Francois has made a huge amount of money for the crown. He is recalled back to France to get his huge title. He is no longer just a Lord Governor. He is now a Marquise. Now, in France, the hierarchy of monarchy is a little different than what we Anglo-American-British origins kind of understand. Um they order things differently. So a marquise is really a big deal. And this makes his sons viscounts. Now, when he returns to the colder, damper climate of France, his health begins to fade a bit. He's now in his late 40s, early 50s. And Desiree, the wife is strong as an ox. The wife is the picture of health. Desiree is now in her 30s. And she's like, oh, shit. What do I even do? I have to secure my future, and my family is living in a sugar mill, and my brother is basically useless. So Desiree goes into overdrive. Desiree knows she is so smart, even though she is Creole, and life on the island is pretty free-ranged, and girls are only educated in a convent for eight years. She's canny and she's kind of crazy like a fox and she's like okay here's the thing this old man who ends up literally living another 50 years but she's like this old man could kick at any moment he's got two adolescent sons I know from the hierarchy of France that I am the official mistress but I have no standing here none None. I will get bumpkiss when this guy dies. I will have the jewels he got me and the dresses he got me, and I will have to make my way on my name. She also knows that the firstborn son, Francois Jr., is already going to have to marry well with a girl with a good dowry. Like, she knows the score. She's like, I'm not getting a firstborn son. But since the secondborn son, Alexander, has decided to go into the military. Now, back then, boys, the second boy, either went clergy or military. Alexander went military. She's like, okay, let me play my hand here. Now, because Francois was the governor of Martinique, 
Joseph Tachère made Francois a lot of money on that sugar plantation, a lot of money before the hurricane hit. So while Francois doesn't quite know the lay of the Tachère land, so to speak, Desiree convinces him. Desiree's in his area. She's like, do you know that you have this title because of my brother? Do you know that, you know, my brother is a lord in Martinique? He is lesser, you know, nobility. And it would be an advantageous thing for you to have that second son in the military marry one of my nieces because that guarantees you a little piece of that trade pie. And of course, Francois was like, but of course, you know, he, he governed that island for many years. And he was like, of course, yes, yes, that's, that's brilliant. The, the number one landholder on that island. Yes, yes. Even though they didn't have a pot to piss in and it was basically a scam. Desiree was like, let me do my bidding. Now, Desiree has been in France for a minute and she has been observing. She knows that you can marry a first son off to a wealthy, ugly girl, but you cannot marry a second son off to a poor, ugly girl. Doesn't work that way. And unfortunately, the Tashere girls are not pretty girls, except for the youngest, Catherine, who is 12 at this time. Now, one could say, well, Desiree knew that her fortune was sold at 12, so why not pick the apple of her eye, so to speak? Catherine was said to be the spitting image of Desiree. She was beautiful, kind, and pretty amiable. The oldest daughter, <laughs> the oldest daughter was older than Alexander and kind of bookish and hawkish and Everybody kind of resigned the, themselves to the fact that the oldest daughter was going to live with mom forever on the plantation. That was just kind of what happened back then. I think she was 17 at the time, and there was no way that they were going to get a... There was no way that a 17-year-old... Can you believe? There was no way... Like, I have a 17-year-old daughter. There is no way a 17-year-old is even desirable in France at this point. So... That takes the oldest out. And actually, when you look at the Tachère de la Pagerie sisters, the oldest probably would have done the best there. Uh, the middle daughter, Rose, who later becomes Empress Josephine, she is charming, but she's a bit of a Luddite, for lack of that's what they all call her. They all call her a bit of a Luddite. She is the most free range out of all of the girls. She did her eight years at convent school, but she is about being the life of the party. She is flighty. She is not well read. She really is kind of not like she's your cousin from West Liberty, Iowa. She's just kind of like she wants to go to a tractor pull like she wants to go mudding she's very common and she is not all that beautiful her teeth are already black from chewing sugar canes her entire life she's okay looking she's a little plump and round and she's very very short and so they go with Catherine because Catherine has the most potential in Desiree's eyes Unfortunately for Catherine, 
Catherine dies before she is able to take the track to France. And um, she dies of tuberculosis. And it was devastating for the family, not just because she was supposed to be their savior and marry into an incredibly wealthy French family. It was because Catherine was the baby and everybody adored Catherine. She was just... Joseph even wrote that it was his darkest day and the man had 39 children. (laughs) So... But Desiree, being Desiree, is still thinking of everybody's future. And she's like, you know what? Alexander is almost 18. (sighs) I hate to do this. Send Rose along, I guess. (laughs) And she just kind of crossed her fingers and she was like, let's just Hail Mary this miracle. You know, Rose is fun. Rose is charming. She is, she is that girl. She could, you know, nobody has a bad thing to say about Rose. She's just kind of dumb and shallow. But, you know, Desiree feels like with enough tutelage and, you know, tutoring under her wing, like if Desiree kind of talks herself into it, she's like, well, if I can do it. Rose can do it because Rose has pizzazz for days. So on Rose's 15th birthday, she and her father make the trek to France to formalize the marriage contract that Desiree made sure to have signed and the bans posted before (laughs) Rose got on that ship. And, you know, just, like, tip one out, like, a double chest pump, deuces to the sky for Desiree, because Desiree was securing her future. Because she knew that if something were to happen to the Marquis, uh, she would be okay if her niece was married into the family, even if it was to the second son. There was so much wealth there. So, props to a smart queen. We also have to address the fact that middle-class women were in vogue in aristocratic society at the time. So let's backtrack a bit. The king of France at the time was King Louis XV, the heir of King Louis XIV, the sun king who built Versailles. This was a very opulent, kind of rich... This was the dynasty that broke France King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette inherited this mess of opulence from King Louis XV. It wasn't them, it was him. Now, King Louis XV legendarily went through the five Nestle sisters. And after the tragic death of one of them. Two of those Nestle sisters died very tragically, very violently. And Louise, the eldest sister, was in exile and wore a hair shirt until she died. And at that point, Louis XV felt he was cursed. The only living sister was Diane at this point, and Diane wanted nothing to do with him. She was like, ugh, he's the worst. Um, 
but like in a jokingly way, like Diane was very affable. She was basically the only one of the Nesle daughters that lived on into history because of her great humor and kind of like this king, am I right? So after the whole Nesle sister thing, he feels that he's cursed and that he's committed incest and blah, blah. And so he really focuses on um, middle-class women, starting with Madame Papadour and then going into Madame du Barry. So it was fashionable, because the king was doing it, for other aristocratic men to have middle-class bourgeois um, mistresses. So Desiree kind of found a pocket there, and Desiree was also able to kind of dress up Rose as well. She is kind of this jewel of the bourgeois. Like, she's lesser nobility because her father is technically a lord and a knight of the, you know, the crown. Um, but she's kind of free range. So she kind of, before Rose gets to France, she's selling this whole like, well, I'm Creole and you are all adoring me. And we're just continuing the fashion. The new fashion is Creole. And she sets the stage to kind of soften the blow of this bumpkin, for all intents and purposes, <laughs> this bumpkin, your, your cousin from West Liberty, Iowa, to show up in France. And, you know, Desiree, gotta give it to her, props. Genius. I mean, let's give pause to the genius that was Desiree Tacher de la Pagerie. Desiree was so in love with... Francois, that she gave up her own advantageous marriage. Like, if you're the most beautiful girl on the richest island in a colony of France, you can have your pick. You can have your pick and you can have all of these children, but she never had a child. She never even entertained. Like, it would have been cleaner for her to have a high-ranking husband in the Navy or whatever, because then they're then the infidelity with the Marquise would have been just like French, right? Like that was a French sensibility. Like you just get married in name and then you have your fun. But, and it was actually less advantageous for a woman to not be married and be the official mistress, which like you have to wonder what's going through Desiree's mind there. Like she really sacrificed a lot of herself for this and you have to put respect on that and she basically had rose's dowry written on like a cocktail napkin <laughs> as a promissory note because the tash shares had nothing but a half bottle of rum to their name like she literally talked this filthy stinking rich old man declining in health who ended up living another 50 years <laughs> into saying, hey, there's a lot of potential here, possibly. <laughs> you know, my brother, let's just kind of write it down. You don't need actual cash for this girl. Like, you know, the potentials there. You you know, like, give Desiree Tacher de la Pazerie a lifetime Oscar. Like, that is some Kris Kardashian queen shit. Like, let's give, let's give her every prop in the world for that because she deserves it. So anyway, 
in October, Joseph and Rose head to France on a ship, like I said, and they get there in December, and Rose and Alexander are married. Now, we'll get into this in the next episode, because Alexander loses his fucking mind that he is marrying this, like, girl from Iowa, right? (laughs) Just, again, I'm bringing up this Iowa analogy a lot, because it's like, it's like, hi, I'm Rose, and I'm from Martinique, and that is what her accent sounds like to people who are used to Versailles, and this is the height of Versailles, and Alexander has a very dashing military record already at his young age, and he is excited to present to the king like and they actually do meet the king and queen at Fontainebleau at one point but he is just absolutely enraged that he is stuck with this bumpkin from the colonies he's just like and he already has an older mistress putting things in his ear we'll get into this more in the next episode but he lays eyes on rose and and desiree already kind of knew it was going to be bumpy but she smooths it over she's like oh rose is really good at the harp she's charming just you know you gotta get to know her we'll buy her new dresses well you know we'll we'll clean this up now while rose is dealing with all of this trauma and horror of going from an island to France. Her dad is like, deuces, I love you, kid. Her dad is just like in every tavern, being as sloppy drunk as possible, probably fathered five more kids. And he goes back to Martinique, leaving Rose on her own. But Desiree, and for some reason, Francois is absolutely enamored with Rose. Francois looks at Rose like she is the second coming. He's like, spend whatever money you need. Make her an appropriate wife. And Desiree's like, and done. Um, So that was, this is where I want to kind of talk about Claire for a second. Now, Claire is Rose's mother. At this point, you would think, now... I'm just spitballing here. You would think the most advantageous thing for the Tasher family would be to bring Rose and, Rose's mother, Claire, and the eldest daughter to France to live with the Bernays. Um, Because then you can find a match for the eldest daughter, and you can kind of get Claire in. Uh, Claire is still young enough that she could be, um, you know, she could, she could work her way in somewhere. But this is where it becomes glaringly clear that Joseph is so inept that Claire and the eldest can't leave because they're what's keeping it all afloat. Claire is running that little sugar mill like an actual household and keeping some money coming in from the plantation while everything is kind of being thrown away and blown apart by Joseph. Now, Mimi, who is said to be Joseph's daughter, stays with Rose in France. And Mimi becomes kind of like the Greek chorus to the whole drama that's about to unfold for the next 30 years. Um, So that's actually quite interesting. So a story that becomes legend, that comes right out of Rose's mouth herself, 
and is actually documented is before she leaves Martinique, she sees a wise woman. Now, island culture and a lot of what will follow Rose through her life is that in the south of America and in the colonies of the islands and everything, what is Europeanly referred to as the dark arts are a huge part of their culture. And the dark arts being voodoo, hoodoo, tarot, all of the things that came from West Africa with the slaves. And Rose is an actual devotee of the dark arts. There are several instances of her using tarot and using hoodoo throughout her uh, life. And she's quite open about it. She even makes a living after she's imprisoned in the Carmes prison uh, before Bara saves her, so to speak, that she's making her living telling fortunes. So before she leaves Martinique to marry Alexander in 1779, um, she says that she saw this wise woman who she knew very well throughout her life. And the wise woman took her aside and did her reading and said, you will not be a queen. You will be bigger than a queen. And that is the last message she gets before she goes to France. And this is a thing that you will see a lot in things written about her, that that kind of haunts her because she does end up becoming bigger than a queen. She becomes empress and she remembers this moment in her life as kind of her destiny. And Napoleon was really big into destiny too. So this is kind of, like I said, the Greek chorus that follows her throughout her time in France. She's imprisoned. First of all, her, you know, she becomes the first council, you know, there's a lot there that we're going to unpack as episodes go on, but this is kind of like the, the cloud that hangs over her from 1779 on. Like, you are not going to be a queen. You're going to be bigger than a queen. So, um, something to think of. And the fact that she uses these island dark arts a lot as she goes through her journey. So that's something to put in. It's also important to add that being a Creole when she gets to France is a huge detriment to her because it's the antithesis of what high society is at the time. But as sentiments change and the revolution gains steam and things shift, her ability to draw from her roots in the colonies and be Creole is actually what saves her life because she's able to draw on that free range, open sensibility that France is trying to pivot towards and get away from this ostentatious aristocracy. And Rose is able to kind of be like, she sets the fashion of the times. Well, you know, she wears her hair in a style that is then referenced to a la Creole. And there were two hairstyles that were very, very prominent when the revolution hit. 
towards the end of the Reign of Terror, and that was a la Creole and a la American. And they both were updos, secured by scarves, off their neck and shoulders, very loose, very natural. And I think Rose's ability to pivot back to the naturalness of her childhood and her origins really kind of set the tone for France and also saved her life. And today, Trois-Ile is a museum in Martinique, Hispaniola, however it is referred to today, depending on your culture. And um, I think that's really great. I think that this is a very rich history. Um, you'll see that this colonial island injects itself into Europe and brings kind of a freedom that they have never seen before. And Rose, who later becomes Empress Josephine, really kind of brings this authenticity, this grittiness. She kind of pulls from Marie Antoinette's um, earthiness. Like a lot of people don't understand how Marie Antoinette kind of had this earthiness about her and the propaganda drowned that out, but she kind of resurrected that and then added a bit of a twist to it. Um, and as we go through these episodes, you'll, you'll kind of see that. And um, I think the most interesting part of the Tashir legacy is the relationship between Desiree and the Marquise. So the Marquis and Desiree were together for almost 60 years. And after Henrietta died, they were old. <laughs> they were old. Like Desiree literally waited decades for Henrietta to die. But the Marquis, he, he kept his promise and he married her when he was old, like old. She died when she was 64. They were only married for a handful of years. He was close to 90. And, but he kept that promise. And he married her. And she got. he later died a few years later at close to 90. And uh, she wound up being the Dowager Marquise of Birnay for a few years before she died herself at 64. And I think that while... History wrote the Tachère de la Pagerise as kind of these trashy trailer park creoles. As we explore the Birnay, the Bonapartes, and the Bernadottes, like the Tachères weren't all that bad. I mean, Joseph was really the sloppiest of everyone. If you look at Claire, Claire went on to really run Trois-Ilet until um, the bitter end. Josephine wound up going back twice, you know, Rose, uh, the first time, Josephine the second time. She wound up taking her daughter Hortense with her and um, continued to stay tied to her, her heritage and everything. When the slave uprisings happened, a lot of the policy Napoleon put into place was at the urging of Rose, later Josephine. Um, and you'll see as we go through this, the islands become the islands as well as Louisiana become a big bartering point. And because you have people in high places from 
the islands and the colonies, it becomes a very interesting point in history to see how that's bartered away, especially the Louisiana Purchase. And uh, we'll, we'll delve into that in the future. Um, anyway, so stay tuned for the next episode where we delve into the Bjornay side of things and the Alexander Not-So-Great himself. Oh, Alexander de Bjornay is a character, and we'll get into that in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening. Don't be scared to rate and comment on this, and I hope to see you next time. Take care. Bye.